beautiful spots. Sometimes we just get tourists coming through and, and other folks, and our web page brings a few people in. And so uh, it, to me, it's super exciting, honestly, because God is the sovereign God. My life verse is Ephesians 1.11. says he is the God who works some things after a few educated guesses. Now, the Bible says he works tapanta, that's the Greek, the all, according to the counsel of his own will. I mean, this is a being beyond our capacity to grasp, and he's not a man. Um, and so that's pretty awesome. In other words, he composed the perfect audience, the perfect crowd, the perfect congregation to come together for his divine purpose and uh, let us be anticipating what he will be doing today. It's good to see you, Ann Wang. It's <laughs> been a little while. Um, anyway, uh, but having said that, we're now ready to dismiss half of you. <laughs> no, we have a children's program for uh, four years old through fourth grade. I just noticed the congregational sag here. I'm going to have to bring, bring the platform out to about, this is about the right spot right here. But, uh, so if you're four years old in fourth grade, we have a really fantastic program uh, for you at this time. So my, my habit throughout my whole ministry, I've been in the ministry about 32 years, is to uh, work through books of the Bible and through prayer and consideration, the elders... We decided to study the book of 1 Corinthians, and we go through it, and that's just our normal way of doing things. Disciplined, taking every paragraph uh, from the Lord God, and so the wonderful thing is, sometimes that pushes you into uh, slightly uncomfortable corners, and that's where we are today, uh, but we make no excuses or mistakes or uh, apologies for the Word of God. Uh, we are going to be talking about a very sensitive subject today, and I, I really, Lord willing, will be handling it very sensitively, uh, Lord willing. <laughs> so let's just open with prayer. Father, as we confess our faith that you are the sovereign God, we thank you for this moment. Please bless our time together. Guide each of us, and we know, O oh Father, that we depend on you to reveal yourself to us and your truth. Your, your guidance, your commands. And please, O oh Lord, pierce our hearts, replace the hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. For your glory we pray. Through Jesus Christ alone, amen. So we're in uh, 1 Corinthians, and Paul the Apostle is writing to this church that he was privileged to be a part of starting um, sometime before he writes the book. And he's been away for a little while, and things have been going wrong. You know, in, the, in physics, there's one of the laws of thermodynamics is what? Entropy. Systems break down. And this is true in every field. Uh, in a cursed world, this all goes back to a moral root. And it's, it's purposeful. God, God broke his perfect system uh, in punishment, in reaction to human sin. That's what the Bible teaches. And that's why we have entropy. Otherwise, everything would not be broken. 
and it would be so amazing. But uh, God has a plan, and one of the plans is when he finally redeems the whole thing, and the Bible says he brings it to perfect consummation in Christ, I mean, we'll spend eternity marveling at his strength and beauty and plan and wisdom and so entropy has happened in, in the church, and the folks in Corinth have been, well, wide, widely straying from where Paul started them. And in fact, a lot of the book is Paul's going, what? I can't believe you're doing that. You know, his attitude is, I, I, well, what's happening here? Uh, what I've been hearing is, is exasperating, it's, it's sad, it's shocking, he says. Uh, and they actually wrote him a note, some sort of a letter. It might have been, a, no, it could not have been an email. It was probably an instant message, right? Uh, <laughs> no, they wrote him a letter with a whole bunch of questions. And we've, here we're, we're going into chapter 7. He's finally getting to their questions. <laughs> he, he had chapters one through six to talk about was even more important than what they were asking about. Uh, that shows you the situation there. So what we have is in chapter seven, we're entering the section through the rest of the book, essentially, where Paul is starting to answer some very specific questions. And I want you to note, it's very important for understanding the context of what was happening in this uh, this church in one of the largest cities in Greece at, in that day, uh, things were looking ominous. There was a dark storm on the horizon. Uh, and the storm was persecution and uh, Roman-inspired, uh, uh, Jewish-agitated, Roman-executed uh, persecution. And uh, see, if you look at ver verse 26, I think this is chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. I think that in view of the present distress, and then um, in this same paragraph, he, he talked about this second, uh, this trouble. Look at verse 29. Um, and this is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. Okay? And then if you look at verse 31, the very last phrase, for the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul was convinced, um, or let's say it this way, he had a really strong feeling that the end times were going to happen, maybe in his lifetime. And God was going to bring that big consummation that I just talked about. And the Lord was going to come back and there was going to be great, huge, horrible tribulation uh, on the earth. Uh, we know that there was, there's been a 2,000-year stretch that Paul does not know about. Now, that's not, to say, uh, that's not to say that we still don't live in the last age. Actually, the Apostle John says that. He says, this is the last hour. Uh, and we know that things can go from bad to worse anytime, and they, they are worse in some areas of the church today. 
we've, honestly, uh, we already prayed about the situation in the Middle East, and we've been praying about it an awful lot, but, you know, the absolute worst place to be a Christian is Iraq and, and Syria uh, at this time. I mean, it's just horrendous, right? This horrible, horrible persecution. So Paul is giving advice in, in view of this present distress. And like I said, let's just keep that in mind. Now, what's he been talking about in the context? Last week, we addressed the problem that the Corinthians were having. Of, they were, some of them were feeling very free about their, uh, their sexuality. They were feeling like uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, there aren't really laws that govern me. In fact, they, they have this slogan, apparently, all things are lawful for me. He says it twice, and it's in quotes in the English Standard Version because that's actually an interpretation. The quotes are an interpretation by the translators, uh, but most Bible scholars think they're right. In other words, Paul is quoting a, a slogan that the people in Corinth were using to justify a sense of moral freedom. Like, hey, I can do anything I want. Uh, I, my sins are forgiven. Christ died for my sins, so why not just sin some more? You remember Paul addressed that at another time in the book of Romans, right? He said, what, should I continue in sin that grace may abound? And he uses the same word here uh, in our text, the text from yes last week. No way! You know, may it never be. Never, no, but we're broken and sinful and our flesh looks for ways to cause deviation, uh, to lead us astray. We remember I talked a lot about deception because that's a great, uh, in, in this whole context, verse 9 of chapter 6, do not be deceived. We live in an environment where the native Influence is deception. The world is deceiving us. We want, we deceive ourselves. We have a deceptive heart. And Satan is the deceiver of the entire globe, the whole earth. And so there's this rich deception and the people in Corinth were willingly falling into it. I thought of this a little bit um, last week. I used to be a hospital chaplain at uh, Valley Medical Center in San Jose, the biggest county hospital. I was on the early form of the bioethics committee. And we would talk about um, Jehovah's Witnesses who would not receive a blood transfusion. That's part of their faith, right? But when their children needed a blood transfusion, some of them uh, had a willingness to be coerced. They were, they were willing, they loved their kids. And if the court stepped in and said, we rule that your child needs a blood transfusion based on this medical advice we're receiving, they, were, they had a sense of being willing to be coerced. Now that's an interesting concept, isn't it? And you apply that to what the Corinthians are going through. They had a willingness to be deceived. <laughs> they, were, they were like, yeah, okay, we, deceive me, here I am, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be coerced. Twist my arm. Oh, yeah, I want to do this. I'm, I'm not making light of it, but that's exactly what's happening. And so Paul really laid it on 
strong by the influence of the Holy Spirit that no, no, no. Your body's not a toss away. It's a permanent thing. God will actually raise you up again. And the body is meant for the Lord. And you're to glorify God in your body. And uh, you aren't to be sleeping around. That's, uh, that's a, a defilement of who you are meant to be as a Christian. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God has high and glorious purposes for you. And uh, in our small group, one of the reflections was, you know, sometimes we emphasize the negative so much that we miss the positive aspects of what is being taught here. The, the positive aspect is God has an amazing, beautiful plan for you as a part of his plan, and he, he desires you to not be deceived. <laughs> he desires you to rise up to the place where you say, I don't want to be coerced. You know, no. No, I want to live for God in my body. So, summing it up, see verse 20. 1 Corinthians 6, the final phrase. So glorify God in your body. I think that fits very well with the first five verses of chapter 7 that I want to look at today. Let me grab a little drink of water here. I'm not at all nervous. Somebody else want to take over from here? <laughs> okay. Let's read the text. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. It, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Again, think, he's thinking, wow, we're living in an era that maybe we have five more years, maybe we have 18 more months, and, and there's a lot of persecution, so maybe abstinence, maybe singleness is the only way for Christians. Yeah, okay, that might be a special gift for you. He'll open that up in, later in the text as well. But he said, but even in this context of potential short-term, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, and that again is the Greek word porneia, and it just means any sort of sexual deviation from God's will, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I'm going to say, he's saying that singleness is good if you have that gift, but marriage should probably be the norm in the church. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. By the way, and I'll, I'll make a point of this later, but I want to make it while I'm reading the text, this is an imperative. This is not a piece of advice. This is not saying, yeah, you know, might want to consider this. This is kind of a good idea. No, when he says, it could be translated, the husband must. This is a command from God. The, the husband must give to his wife her conjugal rights. This is the will of God. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Why? For the wife does not have authority over her own body, 
but the husband does. Now, you know, don't get too excited here, husbands. There's more to this, <laughs> this teaching than that. Likewise, and here's the radical, beautiful, biblical view that is not misogynistic, neither is it feministic. It is equal. It is balanced. You know, this is exciting. The Bible is not against women, and it is not uh, in favor of any sort of subjugation. Isn't that exciting? All the, the critics who say otherwise are wrong. And here's a super text to prove that. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's radical. And what's really cool about that expression is I looked and looked and looked and couldn't find other sources for this. Paul's not quoting somebody. This is, this is the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to truly understand the equality of, of the sexes, of the, of the gender. It's beautiful. I mean, it's biblical, it's taught in the Bible, but Paul puts it in this way that's so... You can't get around what he's saying there. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and all, people, all God's people didn't say anything. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we got to get out the tumbleweeds as uh, <laughs> response today. <laughs> okay, and then and now comes another imperative. Uh, verse 5. Do not deprive. Again, that, that, it's a command. Don't deprive one another. It is not God's will for you to deprive one another. We're going to open that up in a little bit, too. Not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. My title comes from Hebrews 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Paul is answering these specific questions. And the first question seems to be, hey, should we just give up on intimacy? It's really dangerous. People get all messed up over it. It's complicated and kind of scary. <laughs> and maybe we should just give up on it. Maybe we should all be uh, like monks or nuns, you know, live in a monastery and not be married and be single the rest of our lives, which of course would be not be married, right? And so he's answering that. Maybe, maybe never get married. Maybe. Maybe if we're married, maybe we should abstain from marital intimacy. Those are the questions they're asking. And Paul comes down again really strongly by the influence, by the direction of the Holy Spirit. He's not cutting any corners here at all, is he? He says mostly marriage. Now, again, we'll have to open this up later because we're going to get to the rest of the text if, if the Lord wills. And this text definitely defends singleness. In fact, you'll find out that Paul kind of wishes that more Christians would be single, like he is, so that they can totally dedicate themselves to service 
to the Lord, uh, particularly in a dangerous setting. Um, yes, that's true, but he's saying even in the dangerous setting, even in the stressful life that we live, most Christians should get married. And that's because of this strong urge that God has made us with. Uh, that is the urge to be intimate, right? Very strong urge. God is very interested, and this is probably a whole different sermon, but if you look at the basic commands to humanity, one of them is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it's repeated after the flood of Noah, which is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants human beings to live on the earth. This is our home. We're not invaders. We, this, is our, this is our place to live. It's made for us, and we're to live here. And the earth, you know, in, in a responsible way, is to be filled with image bearers who will take care of the earth. And I think way too, again, this is another sermon that I can't resist saying something about it at this point. Why did God give us this strong desire for intimacy? It's clearly related to having children. <laughs> And if he didn't quite make it so strong, maybe that, you know, nobody would have children at all because it can be difficult and scary. But he desires, particularly for Christians. It's, it's, the Bible says he desires, you know why he hates marriages that split up? Because he desires to have godly offspring. That's the taught in the book of Malachi. So, because we're made this way, with a strong natural desire for intimacy, and you know I'm using a euphemism there, um, Paul says, you know what? God made us to be married. We should be married, mostly. We should mostly be married. So here's some bullet points that come right out of the text. Singleness can be a great gift. And someone for whom God has designed that they will be single... They shouldn't feel at all shamed or go out from this sermon and say, oh, what a bummer, I can never obey God's command because I'm a single person. No, please, not at all. Of course not. Singleness, like Paul himself, can be a great gift and a gift to God himself. However, monogamy is the norm. Notice that this text is not saying that a man should have a few wives or one, two, three, or four wives, or sister wives, as it were. No. The husband should, it says, each man should have his own wife, and each woman, there's that equality again, each woman should have her own husband. An endorsement of what we call monogamy, that means having one wife, one husband. Oh, that's it. That's the original design from God. There's been a lot of deviation from that, absolutely, I know that, but that's always sin. It's always cultural collapse, I mean, going into the wrong culture. It's always saying, okay, I'm willing to be coerced. And that's wrong. So that's all I have to say about that. Notice the reversal of ownership in this text. So the, the first thing, uh, my first major point is mostly marriage. Secondly, reversal of ownership. This is so, as I said, this is kind of radical new in information. It's not new, but it's an intensification 
of God's deep intention for marriage. Verse 3, the big imperative. The husband should, must, give to his wife her conjugal rights. And, and that word is obligation. Conjugal. She, he is obligated to ha- be intimate with his wife. It's an obligation. It's not even a choice here. If you're asking, should we give up marital intimacy because our lives are stressful or we're facing persecution, he's thundering down through the power of the Holy Spirit saying, no, no. You have an obligation to your wife to make her happy in an intimate way. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Look at how he explains this. Reversal of ownership. You are not your own. Each partner must concentrate on the needs, desires of the other. Verse 4. I don't get to preach this very often. Sometimes they come to pastors and say, you know, pastors, pastor, or I might refer to you in plural, pastors. (laughs) Sorry. You know, pastor, you should preach on tithing at least once a year. I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I should preach on this once a year, too. Um, just a thought. It's, it's so uh, beautiful and amazing. Uh, it's, so, it's, it, it's awesome. Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. It's almost a contradiction in terms. Because it is still her own body, it says in the text very clearly. But she doesn't have authority over it. She, she literally can't say, I'm sorry, I have a headache. I'm sorry, um, you know, exceptionally she can, but but not as a norm. I mean, I can't go on for like six years or four months. Like, how long is this headache going to be, you know? (laughs) She doesn't have authority over her own body. Again, because why? God has given us a, a deep need, a drive for sexual intimacy, for marital intimacy. This... It's a huge drive in every human being. It's a part of what we are. (laughs) You know, you can take one cell out of my body and find out that I'm a male. I'm a male. No violence was done to me in the delivery room when the doctor said, it's a boy! (laughs) That wasn't violent, as opposed to some radical folks who say otherwise. No, My gender is determined by my biology. It's who I am. And a part of that is my need for marital intimacy. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, again, I said, you know, that sort of sounds sexist. But the beautiful thing is, the opposite is true, too. Likewise, when this comes thundering through, cuts through all the garbage, The husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. It's an obviously linguistically identical phrase. There's no no difference here. So you you literally have crossed ownership here. Reversal of ownership. You you are not your own. Now earlier in the text, uh, it says, verse 19 of chapter it says, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. That's referring to Christians who are owned by God, right? And so therefore glorify God in your body. And now he's saying, 
on a human level, when you're married, you give up authority over your body. You give it to your spouse. She owns you. And you own her. You have authority over her body. So this is not some sort of you know, strange, dictatorial relationship. It's a mutuality. It's a loving kindness. It's a dedication. You know, I, I can speak as being married 37 years. The, the most exciting thing in marital intimacy is attempting to make each other happy. I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. And the cool thing is, honestly, that's when you're the happiest. <laughs> that's the way God made it. When you're serving properly, you will be most fulfilled. And when you're, when you're serving the Lord God, and you're literally, I want to glorify God. I want to worship here. All of our lives are to be worship. You know, let's not separate marital intimacy from a whole life of living in thanksgiving. You know, hallelujah. <laughs> I praise the Lord for this amazing creation he's made. This joy, this fulfillment, this intimacy, this connection, this deep oneness that goes beyond our understanding. Each partner must concentrate on the needs, desires of the other. Okay, so, you know, you might say, okay, okay, Paul, I'm kind of getting this. You, know, you don't need to keep talking about this. But he does. He says this, glorify God in your body. Command, do not defraud. And here in the NIV, I mean, ESV, it says, ESV, English Standard Version, verse 5, do not deprive one another. It's an, it's an imperative. It's a command. You are, you're not to deprive one another. Well, I have some quotes here because this is super important. This word deprive is the word to, to steal or to keep back by fraudulent means. He's saying when we withhold intimacy from each other, we're depriving one another. We're actually stealing from one another. We're stealing what should be rightfully ours, rightfully theirs. To keep back by fraudulent means. To, to unjustly withhold. To take what is not ours. You see, when, when I say, no, no, I have authority over my, my own body, you're actually taking something that's not yours. You don't have authority over your body. Uh, your, your wife or your husband does. Do not deprive one another. And then he says this, except perhaps, look how he limits it, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. For, for a spiritual reason, if you decide to sort of fast on your marital intimacy, to devote yourself to prayer, that's acceptable, that's good, but come together again. Come together again. I, I like that phrase. Um, it, it's to, it's a present tense, to, to be in the same space again. To come back together. Don't be separated. Come to the same place. Be on the same level, the same playing field again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you 
because of your lack of self-control. I have a little bit of a longer quote here. Um, this is from John Calvin. You might think of uh, the reformers as sort of cold, uninterested sort of buggers, you know. <laughs> but it's John Calvin and uh, his commentaries on this passage. Uh, he says this, uh, defraud me not one the other. That's uh, he, wouldn't, he wasn't writing in English anyway, so that's the, <laughs> the English commentator said that. Profane persons might think that Paul does not act with sufficient modesty. I mean, in other words, you could be embarrassed by all this stuff. Like, you know, Pastor, we should have skipped over that passage. <laughs> okay, but this is a public letter from God to us. A profane persons, so he's saying... You're profane if you think that. Um, amen. Profane persons might think that Paul does not act with sufficient modesty in discouraging, in, in discoursing in this manner as to the intercourse of a husband with his wife, or at least that it was unbecoming the dignity of an apostle. <laughs> you follow what he's saying? This seems rather below you, Apostle Paul, while you're speaking of life. Um... If, however, we consider the reasons that influenced him, we shall find that he was under the necessity of speaking of these things. In the first place, he knew how much influence a false appearance of sanctity has in beguiling devout minds, as we ourselves know by experience. In other words, if somebody starts saying, hey, I'm holier than thou because I've given up sexual intimacy, you know, just look at me. I, I'm above that. <laughs> and Paul's saying, no, that's the wrong approach to this whole situation. For Satan dazzles us with an appearance of what is right that we might be led to imagine that we are polluted by intercourse with our wives and leaving off our calling may think of pursuing another kind of life. Farther, we know how prone everyone is to self-love and devoted to his own gratification. From this it comes that a husband, having had his desire gratified, treats his wife not merely with neglect, but even with disdain. Now, honestly, you know, women, if you think about what he's saying, you can totally understand what he's saying. Like, you've got your pleasure and it's over. What a ripoff. You know, um, he, he, anyway, there it is, right? Even, even with disdain. And there are a few that do not sometimes feel this disdain. That, me, and there are few that do not sometimes feel this disdain of their wives creep in upon them. It is for these reasons that he treats so carefully of the mutual obligations of the married life. If at any time it comes into the minds of married persons to desire an unmarried life as though it were holier, or if they are tempted by irregular desires, let them bear in mind that they are bound by a mutual connection. The husband is but one half of his body. And so it, 
is it also as the thoughts, as these, oh, wait a minute, as, as the wife. And so is it also as the wife. Hence, they have not liberty of choice. You can't just choose to opt out. We're going to check the box. Cow has left the barn. <laughs> barn door unable to <laughs> close. <laughs> no, he's saying you can't opt out of this. It, it, there's no liberty. Hence, they have not liberty of choice, but must. Again, there's imperative in this part. But must, on the contrary, restrain themselves with with such thoughts as these. Because the one needed help from the other, the Lord has connected us together that we may assist each other. Let each then be helpful to each other's necessity and neither of them act as if at his or her own disposal. Some radical thoughts. I mean, that sounds super contemporary, super applicational, and it is. And this is written, uh, what century was that? <laughs> 17th century, I think, 16th century. Beautiful, coming out of the Word of God from the Holy Spirit. He knows us. He knows who we are, and this is what he commands us. Do not defraud. Uh, let's see, let me take a minute here and look at my notes quickly. Yeah, here, here's another little, this is a much shorter quote. I had some great quotes here. This is from Matthew Henry. Note, this is really interesting. Persons expose themselves to great danger by attempting to perform what is above their strength. And at the same time, not bound upon them by any law of God. If they abstain from lawful enjoyments, they may be ensnared into unlawful ones. The remedies God hath provided against sinful inclinations are certainly best. Do not defraud. The lack of intimacy equals stealing. Again, I made that point. Uh, the only exception normally should be a special devotion to prayer and after come back together lest Satan tempt you. Again, just outlining what the text says. And I put this on a slide by itself. We all have issues with self-control. No one is above having issues with self-control. The Holy Spirit is not, and he's not insult insulting us. He's saying this is, the, this is what it means to be a human. Uh, the Word of God says this. It says, the person who thinks he's standing, take heed lest he fall. That's actually in 1 Corinthians uh, as well. Let's see, I have it in here, but I just quoted it, so I won't bother keeping looking on these three pages of notes. If, oh, yeah, here it is. I, I kept looking. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Anyone. No one's above that. No one is above the issues with self-control. And I'm picking out the Word of God, verse 5, because of your lack of self-control. See yourself there. Don't trust yourself. 
uh, be extremely careful with this. Now, I want to close with one more slide. Why does this matter? Can't we just say, Pastor, oh, come on, it's very complicated, you don't know, and we're living fine without this. Why should we obey these commands and try to be intimate tonight, for example? Well, first of all, we are called to submit to God. I pointed out, from the Word of God, these are imperatives. This is a command. You can't just opt out. There is no box. The cows left the barn. <laughs> no. God is requiring you to be intimate with your spouse. Isn't that amazing? That's what this text says. It's a requirement. He's requiring you to be intimate. Let's have an invitation. <laughs> Just as I am. <laughs> Come forward and... <laughs> I mean, I, I shouldn't make silly jokes. But that, that's what this... That's the application of this text, you know. Be intimate. God wants you to be. It's a command. Okay. That's just the submission level. Secondly, marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, right? It's supposed to be this beautiful illustration of God loving us and what is that like in the world. And so I ask a couple of questions. Does it honor God to have a hugely dysfunctional marriage? I mean, is that what... The relationship of Christ and the church is? It's like, it's just broken? It just doesn't work? We actually sleep in separate bedrooms? Why? Well, he snores or, or something, right? Uh, she's got to watch movies all night long. I, I don't know. You can make it up. That's not the relationship of Christ and the church. Secondly, look at this. Does it honor God that we give up on this relationship because it may be very difficult? Now, when does that honor God? Well, God, it was hard. So I dug a hole and buried it. And I, I knew you were gracious. Yes, he's gracious. But he doesn't want us to dig a hole and bury it. It doesn't honor God. It isn't like the picture of Christ and the church. The picture of Christ and the church is rejoice in the Lord always. You know, worship the Lord God, enjoy the relationship, uh, understand it more and more, and, and enjoy all the glorious intimacy that is a part of the relationship. God wants you to long for each other and passionately desire to please each other. That pictures Christ in the church. Jesus Christ passionately longs to fix the church and to make the church happy ultimately he, that's his longing as the husband of the bride to, to make us happy forever that's what we believe in the joy one of our great theologians of our lifetime uh, called it um, oh, what is that John Piper say come on nobody knows come on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. thank you thank you it escaped my mind uh, Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism. Hedonism is, uh, you know, wrongly understood is the idea, I, I just want to be, I want to be happy. Basically, whatever makes me happy at any moment, I want that, right? Christian hedonism is the reality that God has made us for joy, real joy, honest, pure, holy joy, bliss, and, and 
the bliss that pulls you in. And, and, and there is no time. There is no space. You're, you're ecstatic. And you're, you're right. Everything's right with the world. It's shalom. It's connection. It's all of that. That's the core of what we believe. And, and marriage is to have that as its core too. And also, we are to long for fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to long for Jesus. We are to be passionately desiring to please Him. Our desire is to honor and please Him. And a marriage that is hugely dysfunctional doesn't meet that standard. So, learn. Learn to be good. I, meant to, I, I left off the tea. You'll have to provide your own tea. <laughs> Cream and sugar. <laughs> That's up to you. Le- learn to be good. And I say this again. 37 years of marriage, it's still a project. Um, and it's still a, an enjoyable project. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as you're, some of you are newlyweds, I say, you know, keep working at it. It's a long process. Uh, it can be very difficult. It can be painful. It can be awkward. It can be embarrassing. Uh, yes, it, is, it can be. No, it is all of those things half the time. Unless you're like really different than I was. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I'm just being totally honest here. But we're, we're to learn in this text. Learn to be good at intimacy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you love us and that you created us as human beings with all our desires and all of our needs to be glorifying you and to be used in your kingdom. We thank you that this text totally implies that marital intimacy is not just about having children. It's clearly about fulfilling us in our, our needs, our physical needs for intimacy and the joy that is made by you uh, to, to be experienced by us. Thank you, Lord, for that great truth. And thank you for the commands in this text. We pray that we will willingly obey them uh, so that we will, will be glorifying you in our body. Amen. Let's stand together for the closing song. And the